0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of EdChoice Chats. My name is Mike McShane, and I'm Director of National Research at EdChoice. Today's podcast is part of a new series we're embarking upon called Cool Schools, wherein we will profile passionate educators around the country and the schools that they lead. This podcast series has two goals. Uh, The first is simply celebration. Starting a new school or running a great existing school is hard work. Too often, it's a thankless job. So we want to celebrate people who are trying something new and different and kick the tires on their ventures to uncover lessons that they've learned and can share with other educators around the country. The second goal is to try and stretch folks' mind about what is possible in education. As Educational Choice supporters, we at EdChoice spend a healthy amount of our time trying to promote educational options that don't exist yet. We push for states to pass laws that create the conditions for great new schools to open and scale. But many people struggle to wrap their minds around exactly what that might look like. In this podcast, we're going to highlight some of those potentialities. With quality school choice programs, innovative models like the ones we talk about here could be coming to a city near you. You know, at the outset, I would like to say that uh, we're not going to try and use this podcast to adjudicate whether or not these are quote unquote good or bad schools. We're not going to examine their reading and math scores and ask them why their fourth graders aren't up to snuff. We are going to ask about mistakes that they've made, lessons they've learned, advice that they would give, and related questions that should be helpful for anyone listening, even if you're skeptical of their educational model or pedagogical strategy. As always, if you'd like to find out more about EdChoice, please sign up on our website for EdChoice emails. Uh, Once you sign up, you can watch your inbox and flesh out your profile with your mailing address if you want print copies of our reports mailed straight to your doorstep. You can also follow our blog, subscribe to this podcast, which we would really appreciate. Um, We don't just profile cool schools. We also interview the authors of groundbreaking research, describe education reform efforts around the country, and talk about the fun stuff that we're up to here. Uh, You can also tweet us. uh, It's at EdChoice. You can also feel free to tweet me personally if you want to let your thoughts be known. I'm at MQ underscore McShane. I'm always on the lookout for more cool schools to profile, So if you know of one of those in your neck of the woods, please let me know about it. So on the podcast today, we have Amy McGrath, who is the COO of ASU Digital Prep and Associate Vice President of ASU Educational Outreach, and that ASU is Arizona State University Go Sun Devils. Um, For those of you who uh, might not be familiar, ASU Digital Prep is an online resource from Arizona State University for K-12 students. It offers both a full-time virtual school program in conjunction with ASU Prep, uh, a charter school network that Arizona State partners with, and it also offers single online courses that students can access to supplement their full-time education. We're so excited to have her. So without further ado, this is my conversation with Amy. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. For our listeners' benefit, I was wondering if you could just give us kind of the overview of ASU Prep Digital. How did it get started? How did you get involved? What's the uh, what's the story?
1: Sure. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. My um, involvement is with um, coming in this year, starting in January with Arizona State University to help them launch a new online program where we allow students to take university level courses and earn credit both towards their high school diploma as well as a university degree at the same time. And whether students enroll in one course or a full-time program, they get to earn VIP application status when it's time to apply to ASU. So it's really trying to merge the worlds of high school and college.
0: That's awesome. So now, how did ASU get involved with this? What was the kind of impetus for them deciding to do this?
1: Yeah, great question. So ASU has been in the K-12 business for a while. We, um, Arizona State University Charters ASU Preparatory Academy. And has since 2008 we have some primary principal brick and mortar locations around the phoenix area we're serving about 2400 students um, physically and during that we've realized some success just in taking some really good college prep curriculum backed by cambridge which is an international curriculum in which um, students are given the chance to kind of go deeper on standards. And we've brought this um, kind of elite curriculum to everyone and democratized it in urban areas in in Phoenix and realized some really great success. So our president, um, President Crow, uh, challenged us to sort of expand our thinking uh, as ASU does so well. And proliferate beyond the geographic borders. Um, so we needed the digital tools to do that. And so about two years ago, some due diligence was done just to figure out how to do that really well. And um, the a team of us, um, pre- previously at Florida Virtual School, including Julie Young, who's the founding CEO and president of Florida Virtual School, got into conversation after she retired about, okay, how can we Use some of our experience from the scale we experienced in Florida and not do Florida virtual school 2.0, but rather just. Kind of pioneer a new vision for what ASU prep was doing in the K 12 space using Arizona State University's kind of assets and ecosystem of innovation and so. So thus the journey began and we launched in August and so far we've got about um, 1800 students that are taking. Um, or rather 1,800 enrollments, which are courses, and that's serving about 900 students.
0: Okay, so like on average, the average student would just take two courses, and I obviously I imagine there's some, some variation around there. So, So where are those students going to school sort of full-time? Are they private school students, traditional public school students, charter school students? Where are you kind of getting your students from?
1: A little bit of everything. Right now, the low-hanging fruit, if you will, Because of um, our brand being ASU, most of our students are pulling from Arizona. This is um, available for free for students in Arizona using the charter as the vehicle for that. Outside of Arizona, it's tuition based. So we have currently about 50 full-time diploma students, diploma granting students. And the rest of our students are pulling from partnerships with districts where we kind of just go in and listen to what superintendents need, and we partner with them to augment offerings, and that might be to solve problems around teacher shortages um, or even uh, courses like physics or languages that are difficult to fill in rural areas. And so many of our partnerships um, are derived around problems we're solving in communities.
0: So that, it is free. So if I am a parent of an Arizona private school student and they want to take physics, they can access your platform and take that class for free?
1: That is correct.
0: That's great. That's a wonderful opportunity. Arizona listeners, I know there will be many of you probably uh, listening. uh, Now you all know that this option uh, is available for you. So, So I'd be interested to know your kind of connection. How did you get involved with ASU Prep Digital?
1: Yeah, so my background is in educational technology and instructional choice and kind of advocating for that. I got the chance to work in the innovation space uh, for Florida Virtual School and testing tools. Um, did a little bit of broad um, writing nationally just around some of um, the issues going on in the um, educational choice movement. And in that um, also began to have this kind of passion for international learning and how we could connect students globally. Um, Got the chance a year ago to work for a company where we had um, several students in China, (laughs) and there's a lot of learning to be done there and how hard that is Uh, in that process really kind of felt like one of the big missing components was uh, The university specifically working with international students is that's the big carrot for students wanting to come over to the United States and so uh, conversations just aligned and Arizona State University was really looking um, as they have been and always are in terms of blurring the lines and creating that continuum of learning from cradle through career. So we just began to have conversations around what would that look like? And um, they just uh, seems like the right university who was walking the walk and talking the talk in terms of um, being able to put students first and kind of create a learning environment around the student as opposed to around the construct.
0: So I'm curious, you know, so you've been involved in this space and 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 you've looked at these just given this particular venture. I would love to know sort of what what were the hardest things that that you all have had to overcome. And I know you're sort of early in the process now, but to to actually get this thing up and running, what were some of the hurdles that you had to clear?
1: It continues to be a hurdle and I think that's because <laughs> most of what works right now for students at scale is tied and anchored to a school model that um, I think there are really great school models out there and some progressive leaders in the space but to truly focus on the learner as opposed to the I guess the, the actual system the machine it gets very difficult to plug into that so creating these complex adaptive systems from a technology standpoint that can um, kind of jump in with the student and the entry point is the school. There tends to be friction there, um, not even from the people, just from the actual systems. So that would probably be um, uh, one <laughs> of the many. Um, but when we talk about how online kind of permeates Uh, all of the different ways that students learn, that's been the bright spot. So kids are coming to us and we're seeking out a lot of student feedback in terms of this is how we want to learn. This is what we want learning to look like. So we know we're moving in the right direction. I think it's the adults um, that kind of have to to figure it all out, but the kids have already figured it out.
0: Sure. No, absolutely. And and I'm I'm curious, you know, on the policy front, you know, obviously we here at EdChoice do a lot of writing about and researching policy, a lot of my background comes from doing research on policy. Are there sort of concretely maybe two or three sort of policy barriers that you run into? I know, as you you mentioned, you know, there's cultural barriers and there's the sort of systemic issues, but are there specific policies that make your life difficult?
1: Um, And I think part of that is um, us demonstrating a progressive model that we hope policy will follow. Um, Arizona is um, really nice in terms of the landscape there and offers quite a bit of um, autonomy. Um, I'm thinking right now of our ESA situation right now, um, and we've got some of our students that are actually leveraging the Empowerment Scholarship. So I think we have some, um, some small wins there, but we'd like to see more volume behind that. And um, additionally, I think we're really after kind of just student-centered decisions. And part of that would be students being able to make a decision based um, on the right instructional choice for them, and that might be parents doing that as well. And so what does that look like from a policy standpoint? Um, in Florida, we had, um, when we established Florida Virtual School, we had the, the backing of the legislature, and that was very helpful for us. And over part of our growth, our spike in enrollment was really due to the fact that we, um, worked with the legislature on this and um, a, a law was passed for all students in high school um, to take an online course before graduating. And so, of course, we saw kind of an avalanche um, from that. So there's various pieces of policy that will drive us forward from an enrollment standpoint, um, but we're also very hopeful um, that we're going to see some some legislation that backs um, kind of a move on when ready, an advance when ready um, type of mentality where students are not tied to seek time, rather performance.
0: So I would be interested to know, given that you're at the sort of early stage um, of this venture, um, and so it may be a little bit difficult to have the sort of um, self-reflection that maybe a, a bit more uh, distance and time would would grant you, but I would be curious to know in this startup process, in getting involved, what is a mistake that you made that other people who might be interested in doing something similar could learn from?
1: Oh, it's a great question. I would say writing anything in pen. (laughs) So from a design perspective, everything needs to be in pencil. I think we have um, really great visions, but in the world we live in, that could be obsolete in five minutes. So um, we have we've experienced building something that, um, from a utility perspective, uh, may work now, but what does it look like in, in a year, in five years? So my advice would be to um, to prototype, to build iteratively. I'm a huge fan of lean startup and design thinking, and um, bringing in the customer at, at every point of delivery to ask. Uh, you know, is my baby ugly, (laughs) and get some really true feedback. Um, And for us, that looks like a constant dialogue with students. And I would say that's been a learning process for me personally, because you think you have um, an idea in your brain that's really good, and then you bring it out to the customer. you waited a little bit too long and put a little bit too much money from a product development side into it, and and then it gets in front of the kids, and it was, oh, that was a total bust. So the advice would be to um, bring it out to the kids as soon
0: as you can. Well, you know, I think that's really great advice because, you know, I think the education world in general might suffer from a little bit too much niceness sometimes in the sense that one of the worst things that you can tell an early entrepreneur or someone who's trying to do something different, that something that they are doing, which is bad, is actually good, right? It yeah, doesn't help right. them at all. And I think unfortunately, if you go to some of these kind of hackathons, or you come to these startup events, uh, you have really passionate educators who want to do something good. And, and and it's great. And that should be fostered. But honesty helps them. Because as you said, if it's a stinker, um, and you invest a bunch of money and your time, and you put it in front of kids, and it doesn't work, you haven't actually helped them at all. So I think that that getting that honest feedback is such is such an important part of this entire uh, is is part of this entire process. And we need more of it and to develop that kind of culture of learning in which we're able to say, like, look, this is all part of the process, but you're not going to be helping yourself or anyone um, by bringing this thing into the world at the stage that it's in right now. But, you know, I'd be curious, you know, trying to do new and different things, trying to re-envision what schooling looks like, what educational options look like. How do you measure success? You know, in a year, in two years, in five years, how will you know if what you are doing is working?
1: Well, I would say that part of that is moving the academic needle per student. So we are a mastery-based model. students can move on when they've mastered a concept and so what does that look like at a cumulative um, testing vantage point so as much as uh, we don't want to drive our design um, by uh, kind of tying it to standards i think that that does matter how our students um, are testing is going to be one of the measurements that we are using also i think qualitatively it matters if they're having fun that matters to us we care that the students are involved in the process especially since we just launched this is a kind of a startup within a mature organization so we want to bring the students in to ask how does this feel for you so we've embedded quite a few surveys without um, creating a kind of survey fatigue for the students in a digital environment, you can do it in a really kind of um, path of least resistance way for the kids. Sure. So we're asking a lot of questions along the way. So I would say they the performance really matters. So grades and all of those traditional fashions and then also asking kids and um, and responding. So again, remaining adaptive. So when students say, this module was no fun, or that video was really lame, actually listening and having that thicker skin to think, oh, I, you know, when we thought this was a really good one, we're going to need to go back to the drawing board and spend the extra money to make it engaging so that we can see the learning gains we're anticipating.
0: And so now just, just a clarifying question, do you have any students that are using your platform like full-time or is it almost entirely being used as kind of supplementing an educational program of another school or provider?
1: We do. We have 50 students who are where their school of record, so they're full-time students with us.
0: And so, so, I mean, does that make a difference, like the types of things that you're doing, yeah. the types of supports that you offer and others, when you have the majority of your model being utilized by folks who are using it as sort of supplementary or an enrichment or, or or just something in addition to what they're normally doing versus students who are going full time in, in your program.
1: Yeah, absolutely it does. From what when we're designing a full-blown online experience, it kind of ties back to our earlier conversation around wanting to make sure that it's really um able to be dismantled and then repackaged based on who we're serving so everything that we're designing with digital assets would be um, in a in a repository that if a full-time student was taking all of their courses with us and and uh, also some college courses they're obviously going to be pulling down um, way more digital assets than a part-time student so when we're building, as long as we're building in a way that we can um, take small portions out, um, I think we're we're seeing some success. But to your point, I think as we grow, we have some very aggressive um, scale goals. So in the next several years, we'll see significantly more part-time students coming in and um, that may be an entry point through a school district or just a parent um, who is seeking some help in. And in courseware that they're not able to teach from home, and so we're keeping that in mind um, and ensuring that um, the support mechanisms that wrap the student aren't just for the full time, but that if a, a part time student is coming in, they're, they're able to avail themselves to all of those resources as well.
0: So now the researcher in me would be uh, remiss if I didn't ask this question. So apologies uh, <laughs> coming from for having to talk to a researcher, but no, you I know, love it. From what. I, from my read of the literature, and feel free to disabuse me of uh, of this, you know, a lot of the research on particularly kind of full-time online education for K-12 students doesn't look so hot. Um, I would be interested to know um, sort of what your read on what some of those stories uh, that have come out or what the research that's come out on, how you all are are responding to that or trying to integrate that. Is it a difference between a full-time online versus part-time online? I would just be interested to know how how you think about what I think has generally been not-so-positive research.
1: So first, Mike, I would agree with you, and that's something that we have to be real about as we are planning for scale, because uh, from just a market consumption standpoint, I don't think we're going to have um, massive droves of full-time online learners. What I do know is that online is the modality that's powering us. And so that would be in a physical space, a hybrid space, a virt- it, it can look different. So I fully believe that uh, online learning, even when it reaches critical mass, is still relatively local. Some of the research really shows us that uh, and 74% of online learners in higher ed are still within 100 miles of the physical space from which their program lives and at 54%, they're within 50 miles. So we know that we need to kind of tap into that from a local level. So, though we're ASU Prep Digital and we kind of speak about online courses, I we really want to um, kind of go into communities and Um, Ignite community members to be a part of this and not just use virtual content, um, you know, experts or subject matter experts, but rather the librarians in a rural area or some of the parents that might have, um, you know, some success from an entrepreneur standpoint and wrap the community around the student and tap into that. And I think that's the only way we're really going to. Um, be able to 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 see scale, and it's not going to be the in, in a way that's packaged and perfectly replicable. If we're doing it the right way, it's going to be different from community to community.
0: That's great. So I have two final questions for you. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation, and thank you so much. It's really that point that you just made Then I'm going to be thinking about for a while, about when we talk about online, quote unquote, learning. I think we, a lot of us have, at least I had a vision in my mind of like, oh, no, that's a kid at home on a computer. But when you say that it drives learning, I mean, the, there can be online elements of brick and mortar schools or this sort of hybridization of all of those. That was a really fascinating point that I hadn't thought about before. So thank you for, thank you for sharing that. So, yeah. so my, my first of two final questions is sort of one is looking into the future What does the next year hold? What does the next five years hold? What does the next 10 years hold for y'all?
1: This is a question that we're grappling with right now, and (laughs) hopefully we will continue to do that, and I won't have just the standard flat answer for you, but uh, (laughs) I will say that we are so deeply embedded in the university that this is a conversation we're having across um, the age spectrum. And, and with our university trying to um, set the example and pioneer the space of a new american university i'd say our goal is to create that new american high school experience uh, and in order to really do that well we just have to be an adaptive place um, i realize some of this is just jargon speak but what does it look like in practice and that is not having a traditional path, but has being open to really, really unique pathways for students and looking different from, um, from student to student. And so hopefully our vision for um, 10 years from now uh, is students teaching students and then some of that um, outcome being archived and then students that are coming in after them will be able to use that. So tapping into more of the successes of students and then teaching kids to think differently. Um, We've got an increasingly interconnected workforce and how can kids prepare for that? It's definitely not in a closed classroom. So virtually opening the doors and trying to shrink the diameter of the globe for the kids, what does that look like on a digital platform? Um, it, It doesn't mean taking away a teacher. I don't see that going away. It doesn't mean taking out school. I think that's gonna be anchored in our society, just from a cultural perspective, it just means tapping into it in a different way and activating the adults in the community. Um, so I feel like I'm giving you a very nebulous answer, but I think that's the goal is to not but have But a lovely one,
0: in. yeah. <laughs> nebulous, but lovely. I mean, it sounds like a wonderful thing. I was I was just yeah. listening along and was like, God, that sounds great. Um, and so okay, so 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 my last question, and and in a way, you sort of already answered this. At, at an organizational level. So I, might, I will I'll expand this to say it could be you've been involved in this space and not just in this venture and in others. So if you want to answer this from the perspective of your own organization currently or yourself as a kind of professional in this space, if you could go back in time to when you started um, and give yourself advice, just one piece of advice, if there's more we're welcome to hear them. But so this is either you at at ASU or going back to earlier in your career and give yourself one bit of advice as you sort of enter into uh, this sort of ed uh, technology disruption space. What would that piece of advice be?
1: Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> I. I'm going to answer it as a young educator. So I started out in the classroom when I was 21 years old, teaching um, sociology to kids that were um, bigger than me. So (laughs) I would say my, my, my advice is not to put the goalposts so close in front of your face. I think that we need to think a lot bigger and we have no idea what the blueprint looks like to get there. But but how can we encourage and change mindsets of kids? Um, And and this goes for us as professionals and me personally as well, is don't have small goals. So what does it look like to to ask for really, really big asks to your principals and your administrators? Um, And even if you get a great big no, um, that perseverance and the grit um, from a, you know, for your kids that we're trying to instill. But for me as a professional, um, I hope to continue to do that, and for the people that I work with in my organization, and and what culture we want to set, um, is instilling that for for that mindset of dreaming big, because uh, what we're after is huge in terms of disrupting again, um, and hoping to continue to disrupt the education space, is to to dream big, think big, and and be okay with no, and then keep asking.
0: That is outstanding advice. Um, for all of us in this space or in basically any endeavors that we want to take in. Amy McGrath, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It really was a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate you guys asking and uh, highlighting some of the cool things going on in this space. Appreciate your time.
0: So there was that. How much fun was that conversation with Amy McGrath of ASU Digital Prep? I think maybe in that conversation, I actually flipped it around and called it ASU Prep digital if I did. Amy, a hundred thousand apologies. Um, but definitely check out what they are doing. I think it's some really interesting stuff. Free for kids in Arizona. How great is that. As a reminder, if you'd like to find out more about Ed Choice, please sign up on our website for our emails, follow our blog, subscribe to this podcast. Like I said, it's not just gonna be me talking to you. We have a whole bunch of other content that comes out through this medium. It's great. Follow us on Twitter. Again, if you have ideas for cool schools, make sure to tweet them, either to EdChoice, at EdChoice, or at me, at MQMcShane. Thanks so much for joining us, and I'll talk to you next time.